listening to the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, recorded at the studios of Maine Magazine in Portland, Maine. Show summaries are available at doctorlisa.org. Download and become a podcast subscriber of Dr. Lisa Belial through iTunes. See the Dr. Lisa website or Facebook page for details. Here are some highlights from this week's program. Grief comes barreling back when they least expect it. We offer services when people feel they need it, and they come when they feel they need it, and they end when they feel they're ready to leave. We leave that up to them. The kids really know what they need, and the important thing is just to listen to them and to ask them what do they need, and take the lead from them and answer their questions as realistically as you can. And if you don't know the answer at the time, it's okay to say, you know what, I don't know. Let me think about it and I'll get back to you. I call it lifting you up, family sharing again, where there might have been some barriers and it's pretty special, very special. It used to be years ago that people would say, hospice, hmm, what's that? And they'd want you to explain it sometimes. Now it's, oh, hospice. And because people have experienced the comfort, the sense of not being alone, and the support that hospice brings, they're now beginning to ask for it themselves. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is made possible with the support of the following generous sponsors. Maine Magazine, Mike LePage and Beth Franklin at Remax Heritage, Seabags, Dr. John Herzog of Orthopedic Specialists, Marcy Booth of Booth Financial Services, Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial, Apothecary by Design, and The Body Architect. This is Dr. Lisa Belial, and you are listening to the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, show number 66, Comfort airing for the first time on December 16th, 2012, on WLOB and WPEI Radio, Portland, Maine. The holidays can be a time of both joy and sadness. This is particularly true when our families are impacted by illness and difficulty. This week, we find comfort in the wise words of Ann Lynch and Valerie Jones of the Center for Grieving Children, and hospice advocate Louise Hurlbut and Arlene Wing Chief Executive Officer of the Hospice of Southern Maine. As a doctor in the community for many years, I've had the chance to interact with both of these organizations. Although I first learned about the Center for Grieving Children when my young sister's fifth grade friend died suddenly of a heart condition. This friend happened to be the daughter of Ann Lynch of the Center for Grieving Children. It was an unfortunate way to learn about this organization, But I truly believe that what these people are doing is bringing light and hope into otherwise dark places in people's lives. The same can be said of hospice. Few physicians in this area would argue with the fact that hospice is a very important thing to offer end-of-life patients and their families. We hope that you find inspiration and comfort in our conversations with Ann Lynch and Valerie Jones of the Center for Grieving Children and hospice advocate Louise Hurlbut and Arlene Wing of Hospice of Southern Maine. Physical pain can be one of the things that keeps us from finding comfort in our lives. How do we deal with our physical pains? Try acupuncture. 
compilation of data from 29 high-quality research studies involving the use of acupuncture for back and neck pain, osteoarthritis, shoulder pain, and chronic headache in almost 18,000 patients showed a statistically significant benefit. As an acupuncture and traditional Chinese medicine practitioner for many years, I've seen my patients derive great benefit from this, and I look forward to working with you and helping you find comfort from the pain in your life. Call me, Dr. Lisa, at The Body Architect to schedule your acupuncture appointment today, 207-774-2196, or visit doctorlisa.org for more information. As we get ready for the holidays, many people are feeling joyful and hopeful and they're happy that they're going to be gathering with their families. And we certainly hope that this is what's um, going on in the lives of our listeners. But we also know that there's another side to it, that there are people who are likely going to be missing family members that are no longer with them or friends or um, people who have just sort of left this earthly sphere, let's call it. And this is the reason that we thought it would be important to talk to people from the Center for Grieving Children, an organization that's been quite active in the Portland community for many years. And it's an organization that um, I feel personally very connected to. Thank you for coming in and talking to us today. We have Ann Lynch, Executive Director, and Valerie Jones, who is the Bereavement Services Coordinator for the Center for Grieving Children. Good morning. Good morning. Now, the Center for Grieving Children, it's an interesting thing for me because I, um, like many people, I tend to put support behind organizations I hope that I will not ever really need. Mm -hmm. So I always donate to, well, I don't even want to say it on air because I don't want to, and I'm going to knock wood as I say this, but organizations that I hope I will never need. Mm -hmm. Um, But I know there are a lot of people who need the support of your organization. And you have a pretty personal reason for getting involved with all of yes, this. Yes, I do. Um, I lost my daughter uh, back in, in 92, and uh, it was a very sudden, sudden death. She was only in fourth grade. And so the center uh, came out to the school and helped support her classmates and also the other classmates of my two sons. And so... Um, that's when I first became aware of the center, and so had been watching it, and very much um, impacted by the fact when something like this happens, who is taking care of the children? So it, it, it meant a lot to me. And then when the time came for me to take my two boys and myself to the center, um, what really blew me away was the fact that it was a peer support model done by volunteers. The fact that people from the community would be willing to to listen to you when you're in a very tender and raw place. And I thought that at some point, if when I was well enough, I would love to come back and volunteer, which I did. And the, the mission of the center continued to call me. And when there was an opportunity on staff, I applied for a position as, as outreach director. And that, that I involved going out to schools, which is something that I'm very, very close to. And, um, but then later, back in 2001, when our executive director was leaving, Gail Chinelli, I applied for the position. So that's, I'm in the hot seat uh, since then. Uh, it's, a, it's an organization, as I said, that's very, the mission is very meaningful to me and something that I felt I couldn't, I couldn't be behind something I didn't believe in. It, it, it rocks you to your core when you, have, when you have a loss like that. 
and the community that's there at the center is, is phenomenal. How did the Center for Grieving Children come to be? It's now 25 years old, and this, the, our founder, Bill Hemmen, started the organization back in 87, and it was in response to a loss in his own life when his, his only sister, only sibling, um, had a nine-year-old daughter, and his, his sister was diagnosed with terminal cancer. So when his sister died, he was struggling with his own feelings, and he was looking around Portland for support for himself, which he could find, but he couldn't find anything for his niece. So he happened to be listening to, to TV and saw a piece about a place out in Portland, Oregon, called the Dougie Center. And he was a stockbroker at the time, and his thought was, we need something like this here in Portland. So he gave up his job, he tapped into his savings, he went out to Portland, Oregon, came back and started, started the center with four families and 12 volunteers. Fast forward to today when we've got 125 volunteers and serve about 350 individuals in our peer support groups. Valerie, how do children grieve differently than adults? Well, children are very much their feelings, and they express them not just in words, but often in actions and activities. So at the center, we give them those ways to express themselves, not just by sitting in a circle and talking, although that that is some of what we do, but we have a lot of different uh, outlets for them, such as art and drama, music, um, and, and play. A lot of feelings come out during play. Uh, children are not able to stay in a place of grief like adults are. They kind of come in and come out in waves, and we understand that. So that one minute a child can be in one place, maybe sad, and telling their story, and the next minute they're off and playing. And so being able to meet them where they are is really important. And that's one of the things about the beauty of the center. We meet each child, each participant, where they are. And was that your experience with your sons, is that they were in and out of grieving? Yes, they were, and uh, for, for them, physical activity and, and sports was an important thing for them, a great uh, avenue for them, but being boys, again, it was also a different level of expectations out of, you know, the gender aspect of grieving is definitely, definitely obvious. But I kept the, the subject alive, and obviously by being involved at the center, it obviously was a very, you know, vivid part of our lives. So they, they had moments when they, they wanted to talk, but it was, it was different. It was different than how I was grieving and different to how their dad was grieving. So that was also something that the center taught me, is that we would all be different. And I think that this is an important point and something that we've brought up and we've talked to other guests, is that there seems to be an expectation by the greater society that people are supposed to follow some sort of timeline when it comes to grieving. Mm -hmm. um, I think we spoke with the Reverend Jacob Watson from the Chaplaincy mm -hmm. Institute of Maine and, and he was talking about this fact that you know you're supposed to follow your stages of grief and you're supposed to do it within so much time mm -hmm. and if you don't then you know there's something wrong with you. Mm -hmm. But Valerie is is that really reasonable to expect that people are all going to um, have the same follow the same timeline? No it's not and it, again, that's the beauty of the center because we realize that everyone's grief timeline or journey, as we like to refer to it, is different. 
And we see families come to us and there's such a relief for them when they find out that if they're not following some pattern, that that's okay. That whatever they're feeling at any point is okay. And oftentimes people are surprised at the fact that, you know, maybe some time has passed since the death, maybe a few years, but that grief comes barreling back when they least expect it. And they can be at the center during those times. We um, offer services when people feel they need it, and they come when they feel they need it, and they end when they feel they're ready to leave. We leave that up to them. Well, tell me about some of your specific programs that are available. Okay. What we're probably best known for is our bereavement program, and we offer bereavement peer support groups for ages three through adult. Um, We offer that three evenings a week, and the groups are uh, broken down um, by ages. And what that does is it gives children the experience of being with others of similar age who have also experienced a loss, and that really reduces isolation that they may feel in other aspects of their lives, like at school or with friends or other things they do out in the community. Being with peers uh, can be enormously healing to be able to share feelings around that. And it's it's the same through the adults. Um, we offer two adult groups on each of our nights of bereavement for adults who have children in the program. And then we have two um, kind of adjunct groups for adults, uh, those who have experienced the loss of a child of any age and um, those who have lost a spouse or partner. Um, We also have our Tender Living Care Program, which is for families who are faced with a serious illness. And they come to the Center for Support around that because we realize that illness doesn't just affect the person that's ill, but the entire family dynamic. So it runs on the same type of model. It is peer support, same age groups type of thing. Um, And that program runs in segments so that families can choose to come because illness is so up and down. Um, So families can choose to come for Uh, a certain segment, maybe while their loved one is going through um, a treatment. Um, They can come get some support around that. Uh, Our other program is our multicultural program. And we work with currently with two schools um, with children who um, have suffered loss on many levels, not just loss from death, but also loss of culture and country, and sometimes language. And we help them build a community where they can be who they need to be. Um, And that, again, reduces isolation and helps them assimilate to being in this country while being able to honor the culture and the country that they've come from. And it's hard for me to um, sit across the microphone from you without actually remembering when your daughter died Mm -hmm. because my sister Sarah was um, on the soccer team That's right. with your daughter, and it was sudden. Yes, and, it was sudden. And I remember taking Sarah to um, to the wake, mm-hmm. and this was, I think Sarah was maybe a little older, so I don't know if she was fourth or fifth grade, yeah. but I was the older sister, 10 years older, feeling like I should be responsible. Right. And 
I didn't know really how to support her. I didn't really know how to support my sister through something Mm -hmm. like losing a classmate. Right. What types of suggestions can you offer to people who are in that situation where they may not be the one who knew the child Mm -hmm. that died, but they want to support somebody who is involved? Well, I think by being present with them, and as you did, you you attended the wake with her, I think the important thing is to listen to what she wanted to do. And uh, I think if you remember back, there was a lot of children who were there, and I think that kind of blew people away that, and actually these kids didn't want to move, they wanted to hang around, and they wanted, and in a way it kind of, I think maybe freaked some adults out that this was, you know, this was happening. So. That's what we find at the center is that the kids really know what they need and the important thing is just to listen to them and to ask them what do they need and take the lead from them and so that you don't feel like you're over, you know, that you're flooding them with information. Answer their questions as realistically as you can and if you don't know the answer at the time, it's okay to say, you know, I, I don't know about that. Let me think about it and I'll get back to you. So. Um, I am sure for you, being present, you you had the issue of how your sister was hurting and what that was like, and the the need to protect her from that pain, and the and the the scariness that it was at the time that it was a sudden death of a ten year old. Well, and that that's a that is a really important piece is that, and even as a parent now with mm. children who are older, and, and I should say that my kids have all benefited from your son's soccer instruction <laughs> at Yarmouth <laughs> High School and through the Yarmouth Colts program, and I know that your family was involved in starting the Colts program mm-hmm. out in Yarmouth, the youth soccer program. I, I think even now there is this inclination to want to protect my children the way I wanted to protect her, you know, protect from grief, protect, protect from sadness, protect mm-hmm. from all the bad things and the right. you know quote unquote bad things quote unquote dark things sure but I, i'm not sure that's always the right path well i think it's very natural and but the important thing which is what we try to uh, invoke is to listen to your children because sometimes parents do try to overprotect them and over overcompensate and and the kids end up having kind of two realities you know this this what they're thinking and then there is what the what the parent or the caregiver is is telling them, and that can be very confusing. So we encourage people to to be open to it. It's it's not easy, and that's why we field over a thousand phone calls a year and help coach people and help them with how to have that conversation because it's 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 not an easy conversation because you don't want to see your kid in pain. This segment of the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is brought to you by the following generous sponsors. Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of Remax Heritage in Yarmouth, Maine. Honesty and integrity can take you home. With Remax Heritage, it's your move. Learn more at rheritage.com. Here on the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, we've long recognized the link between health and wealth. Here to speak more on the topic is Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial. As time winds down, I take great comfort in knowing that in some languages, there is no ability to speak of time in the sense of past, present, and future. In other cultures, there's more vibrancy in how to speak of love or the beauty of snow. In our culture, there's a big shift taking place in how we view health and energy and what it means for taking better care of our wealth. 
It is true that our resources are important to us. It is true that we desire for good health and a long life. But it would be nothing if we didn't have people to share it with. At Shepherd Financial, we believe that the end of a focus on time is the beginning of something better. We believe that how we create, manage, and share our energy will be more useful in the years ahead than the time management of the recent past. We'd like to wish you Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays and invite you to come in and talk about how you'd like to invest your energy this New Year's. Call us at Shepherd Financial, 847-4032. Let us help you evolve with your money. Shepherd Financial, securities and advisory offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA SIPC. There was a time when the apothecary was a place where you could get safe, reliable medicines, carefully prepared by experienced professionals, coupled with care and attention focused on you and your unique health concerns. Apothecary by Design is built around the forgotten notion that you don't just need your prescriptions filled. You need attention, advice, and individualized care. Visit their website, apothecarybydesign.com, or drop by the store at 84 Marginal Way in Portland and experience pharmacy care the way it was meant to be. What about the holidays? It, it does seem that a lot of people are impacted by not having their loved ones around, but they aren't necessarily able to share that with the people around them who are in joyful spirits and happy moods and wrapping presents and celebrating Hanukkah. What types of suggestions can you offer, Valerie, for people who are going through this or people who are trying to support them? Well, I think one of the most important things is that people give themselves kind of a break. Uh, there are so many expectations around the holidays, and if people kind of have that are steeped in tradition or things that the rituals that they always did it can be really hard to kind of decipher what is it that we want to do and um i know when my my husband died and my children were um 12 and 17 at the time and that first year was really hard we had always either gone to see family or family came to see us. And that year we decided to do something entirely different. And that felt right for us. And so we encourage families to do what's right for them. Um, and But in doing that, communicate with your loved ones. They're there trying to keep things as it was, even though for the person who's grieving, it'll never be the same. So being able to say, you know, I just don't know if I'm going to have the energy for that. And can I make that decision a little bit closer to the actual date? If people can kind of understand where you're coming from, it helps them be supportive. And and kind of know your, know your limits. Um, often, you know, grief brings out... Um, physical exhaustion, emotional exhaustion, and if you add the holidays on top of that, 
it can just be way overwhelming. So we really encourage people to do what they feel is right for them and their families. And for some families, that means starting new traditions that first year. Um, but it really uh, is important to talk about it and find out what's important to people and find ways to um, honor the person. So often people won't mention the person that died and that can be very hurtful, especially around the holidays. So being able to speak about that, it's really important that we bring his name into the room, that we remember him, um, sometime engaging the children in an activity. One activity, for instance, that anyone can be involved in is making a paper chain that can go throughout the holiday season where children and family members can write memories or stories or pictures if the children are very young and they can add to it throughout the holidays and that keeps the person there and present for them. Are your loved ones that have passed on, are they still with you in some way? I have times when I believe that that we are in, in touch, you know. Uh, it could be a song that comes on the radio. It, it could be just there's that sense that uh, you're you're close. And obviously, for for me, as I said already, it's it's how I've chosen to to live in terms of of a career. Um, but definitely, there there are coincidences that that happen that you say yes. You know, that was something that, you know, the, we're, we're in sync, you know, we're thinking about one another. And that's, that's a nice, warm, nice, warm feeling. It's not a, not a sad feeling. It's a warm, a warm feeling. And I feel the same way. I mean, every time I look at my boys and they, they have a mannerism or they uh, remember something that their dad taught them. Like my youngest son was, we were talking the other day about golf and, and he said, well, dad taught me how to do, do it like this. And to me that was so special because this is a child that has never picked up a golf club since. It's just not his thing. But he remembered that. And uh, it's just amazing how mannerisms, whether it be the way they sit in a chair or something they might say, and it's just like, oh my gosh, that is coming through. And it's unbelievable to me, but it is definitely there. Definitely. How can people find out more about the Center for Grieving Children? They can go on our website, www.cgcmaine.org, or call us at 775-5216. And do you have a Facebook presence? Yes, we do. We have quite a social media presence, and it's not my forte. I'm glad that I have <laughs> others in the organization who love to do that. And it's, we want to be out there for all, all ages and try to be in front of as many audiences as possible. And because, you know, we serve all ages, and that's important, too, that we serve the teens and the young adults. Well, it has been my pleasure to spend time with you today talking with Ann Lynch, the Executive Director, and Valerie Jones, the Bereavement Services Coordinator at the Center for Grieving Children here in Portland. This is an important holiday topic, believe it or not, for those, I hope, who are listening, they now believe it, 
And I urge people to go to your website, to your Facebook page, to find out more about your organization. Maybe consider volunteering or reaching out, yes. donating money, all kinds of different ways to get involved. Yes, absolutely. Volunteers are crucial to our organization. Well, thank you for coming today. Thank Thanks you. for having us. We'll return to our program after acknowledging the following generous sponsors. The Body Architect was founded on the belief that mindful exercise improves the health of the mind, body, and spirit. Housed in an open, light-filled space in Portland, Maine, The Body Architect offers a cutting-edge fitness center, expert personal trainers, nutrition counseling, and a full class schedule. Visit thebodyarchitect.com or call 207-774-2196 and get started with The Body Architect today. And by Dr. John Herzog of Orthopedic Specialists in Falmouth, Maine. At Orthopedic Specialists, ultrasound technology is taken to the highest degree. With state-of-the-art ultrasound equipment, small areas of tendinitis, muscle tears, ligaments, instability, and arthritic conditions can be easily found during examination. For more information, visit orthocareme.com or call 207-781-9077. I'm very happy always to have with me people who come in that I know from out and about in the community and also to meet people that I don't know. So I feel like I'm in a good place today as I welcome Louise Hurlbut, who is the one that I do know, who is an advocate and fundraiser for Hospice of Southern Maine. And sitting with her is Arlene Wing, the CEO of Hospice of Southern Maine. Really pleased with the work that you're doing in our community to um, help families through a very difficult time. Thank you for coming in and talking with me about it. You're welcome. You're welcome, very nice to be here. Arlene, I'm gonna start with you and ask about hospice. When you and I were talking before, you mentioned that it had been an evolution. You'd noticed that it had been an evolution over time. People didn't used to know that much about hospice, and they know a lot more now. For people who don't know about hospice still, what is it? Hospice is a program of care that provides comfort and support to people with a terminal illness and provides um, various types of help and education to those that are caring for them. The goal of hospice is to help people be comfortable in all ways, not just comfortable with their physical symptoms such as pain, but also to be comfortable socially, emotionally, spiritually, and that's why hospice provides care using an interdisciplinary team. So the team is comprised of uh, medical-focused professionals like physicians and nurses and hospice aides, but also social workers and chaplains. And we always have many volunteers that provide support as well. And the volunteers uh, perform different roles in providing companionship and care and respite. When they visit out in the home, it's uh, you could think of it similar to what a friendly caring neighbor might do to come and sit with someone or do some tasks or sometimes it's something like play a game of cards or um, just to be there and be a supportive presence. Louise, why did hospice come into your sphere of thinking? Why, what, how did it become important to you? Well, in 2000, my mother passed away at Huntington Common in Kennebunk. Um, 
And she, uh, we had hospice come in in the last two weeks to help us all out. I mean, she was getting nursing care, but it was the emotional spirit. Uh, journey that led us to understand death, which often we don't understand until it's apparent, um, the spiritualness of it, and just that supportiveness. And about a month after mom passed away, one of the staff came to me and said, would you be, you have such a strong feeling about hospice, and would you be willing to help me start, you know, finding money so that we can build um, a hospice facility in Maine. And, and when I looked into it, I realized that Maine rated next to last in the United States for hospice care. And I had moved to Maine from Philadelphia where hospice care was pretty active. And it sort of became my journey for my mother to help. And we started on this journey and raising money. And um, in three years, we raised, you know, three million and we could make, and then other people just started and then it evolved. And it was a very passionate thing for me um, to do. And it was sort of, I wanted to get involved in Maine. We had just moved here and it was a way, it was something that I truly believed in. So um, that was my journey through it. Um, and we have wonderful people like Arlene who lead us um, through it. In my own journey, um, I've had cancer after the we started hospice, and it's a great sort of relief to know it's there, that you have a place in the end to um, that's going to take care of you um, in a in a very spiritual and giving family counseling and children and just the help you need. It's like alleviated the fear of death for me. Um, it's very interesting. It's, you know, death is very different for everybody. And um, so it's been a, a wonderful journey in that and to see it grow. Um, if you read in the Portland Harrow Press, 75, in the obituary, 75% of people die at the Gosnell Memorial Hospice House, and it's really like, oh my God, this is amazing. It's so needed. And when we started hospice, and I think Arlene can address this more, we had to educate the medical community, you know, the doctors, and we didn't have the insurances and all that. And that journey in the last 10 years has been pretty incredible for what now is provided in insurances and and uh, Medicare. Don't you think, Arlene? Oh, very much. It's It's been quite an evolution. It's been several years ago now. I think it's we're getting close to 10 years ago that the Maine Hospice Council um, got a grant from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, and part of that grant allowed us to conduct a survey around the state of Maine concerning people's beliefs about various end-of-life issues. But one of the questions asked, um, do you know about hospice? And it really surprised us then because we thought by that time we'd made a good amount of progress in Maine and about 50% of people said they didn't even know what hospice was. And there has been a change. Now those of us that work in hospice over the last year to two when we've been talking to each other about the change or the shift that has occurred in that when we'll tell someone what we do for work and 
they say, oh, hospice, it used to be years ago, um, even more than two to five years ago, that people would say, hospice, hmm, what's that? And they'd want you to explain it sometimes. Now it's, oh, hospice, they know what it is, and they almost always have a story about having received care with us. It's so different. And because people have experienced what Louise described, the comfort, the sense of not being alone, and the support that hospice brings, they're now beginning to ask for it themselves. And people don't often realize that they can call hospice directly to request services and then we can take it from there to call their physician for them and do what it takes to um, make it possible for them to enter into a hospice program. So it really has transitioned. Why do you think that people feel so alone when they have cancer or when they have a serious illness? Why do you think that people are so afraid of not being cared for? I think there's a difference. I think the medical community here in Maine takes wonderful care during your cancer treatments while you have cancer. But I think all of us who are terminally ill or ill, you know, have this fear of the very end. Will I be able to tolerate the pain? Will I be able? It's a frightening spot. Um, for a lot of people. And I think that you, when you have that, uh, of course, a lot of us have beliefs, religious beliefs, which help us through those journeys. But there's something extra with hospice and its gathering. Um, I had a dear friend whose mother was dying in the hospital, and they told him that she only had two weeks. And I said, you can't leave her in the hospital. Do you, uh, do you know about hospice? And he said, well, I've, I've heard about hospice, but I'm really not too sure what they do. I said, you've got to experience it. You've got to bring your mom home to your house. Let her look out at the ocean. Let you know your brother's children, her grandchildren, come and be with her. And everybody experience the death, but experience the death in a wonderful way. And I can remember uh, he made the first step with his physician and got her home from the hospital to his house. And the first night at midnight, I got a text with a picture of the grandchildren in bed with the grandmother reading a story with the grandmother who, yes, is dying, but she she was still alive. She was still verbal. And the biggest smile and you know, the message to me was, I can't thank you enough for introducing me to hospice. And I think people don't really know that journey. I call it lifting it up, lifting you up, helping the family. The, hospice gets you through certain tough times in the end, and families sharing again where there might have been some barriers, and it's pretty special. Um, very special. Death comes to each and every one of us. That's one thing that we all have in common. And a disease will progress, death will come. Being in hospice won't change that. But it can make that time much more comfortable. It can bring a team of supportive, well-trained, expert individuals around you to help you manage with all that's going on. 
and there is a lot going on and and I was struck by Louise's words when she said she no longer felt afraid of dying and to me that's one of the most powerful things and one of the biggest gifts that a hospice experience brings to people and families and I've had so many family members say that to me and dying patients say that to me that having that experience changed that for them so when you think about that, one of our biggest fears, if not our biggest fear, being taken down or taken away is very huge because people know they can be comfortable and they don't have to be alone. And uh, it's, it's a wonderful gift for us to be able to give to others. Do you think that medicine, the way that it's set up now, where we are trying to cure things and we're trying to look for answers and we're trying to um, prevent the end from happening, do you think that this has maybe caused some of the problems with dealing with death and dying? There's always that possibility, but I look at it more as we need to become really good at the transition and learn when it's time to change. And one of the things that is another barrier is that often people think of that transition time or that change from trying to cure the underlying disease and changing to trying to keep all of the symptoms under control and keeping the person comfortable. We tend to think of that as going from doing everything to doing nothing, and it's not. It's going from doing everything possible to cure the disease to very aggressively treating any symptoms that arise and keeping the person comfortable. It's different. It doesn't mean giving up. It doesn't mean abandonment. It means something different. And so for people to get good at making that shift, I think, is what needs to happen because they're both very important. I've seen a rise in the number of uh, medical doctors who are going into palliative care. And I, and I think this has become more of a recognized field. Mm -hmm. Are we seeing, are you seeing that in your work in Maine? Yes, uh, we're um, having more and more physicians uh, sit for their boards to become hospice and palliative care certified. Um, back when I was first working in hospice, there were quite a few years when we only had one in our state that was uh, board certified. So we're coming a long way. There is growing interest, and for many physicians, once they experience that practice, if it is something that they are innately drawn to, they love it. And we have had many physicians come to us expressing interest in doing that work with us, which we feel very honored by because the the physicians are typically quite a scarce commodity in our healthcare professional realm. So um, I think that is a great indicator that there is great interest in the work of hospice. We'll return to our interview after acknowledging the following generous sponsors. Using recycled sails collected from sailors and sailing communities around the world, Sea Bags designs and manufactures bags, totes, and accessories in Maine on Portland's working waterfront. From the best-selling classic Navy Anchor Tote to fresh new designs, Sea Bags offers retired sails another life by turning them into handmade, one-of-a-kind, nautical-inspired pieces. Visit the Sea Bags store in Portland or Freeport or go to www.seabags.com to browse their unique collection.
and by Booth, accounting and business management services, payroll and bookkeeping. Business is done better with Booth. Go to boothmain.com for more information. Louise, you talked about um, the spiritual aspects of transitioning with your mother and also in your own life. Is this something that you ever felt you could address with your own physician or your healthcare providers or your mothers? Um, I think um, today we, i.e., cancer is now a managed care disease, and we are very fortunate that medicine has allowed many of us to live much, much longer who have had cancer or other diseases. And I think maybe 20 years ago, it wasn't, you wouldn't have discussed it, but today I discuss it very openly. I mean, I, you know, I know how I don't want to be prolonged. I accept, it's accepting where you are in your life. And I think Arlene made a really good point. Some people have said, oh, isn't hospice about giving up? Won't my mother know that we're giving up on her? But it's making her comfortable in the end. It's there's no more that you know the medical profession can do for that individual. So it's taken them to another level. And I think you know when one has spirituality added to it, it really is raising you up. And I like to look at it that way. Um, that it is another form of a spirituality. Some people wouldn't, but I do. And it, it's, um, you know, I think I really am excited to see where the medical care profession is today than 10 years ago, you know, on hospice care. Does it matter what type of religious background or spiritual religious affiliation somebody has or a family has when they approach hospice for care? No, absolutely not. One of the things that's very important in the world of hospice is that we want to honor people where they are, for who they are, try to learn what their wishes are, and do our best to have those wishes come to fruition in this last part of their life. Um, There would um, never be any expectation that someone had to be something or believe something. We meet people where they are and honor their beliefs and their ethnicity and, and their age and background and gender and whatever it is. One of the things that we work very hard to do is learn how to be there. And it sounds simple, but we do a lot of training around that where we work to be able to quiet our own agendas and our own thoughts and be present with someone and truly listen and allow them to process with us because when you think about it emotionally spiritually socially people are doing a huge amount of work during this time socially they're saying goodbye to everyone they know emotionally people universally experience emotions of all different sorts as do the people that love them and spiritually people universally deal with spiritual questions things like what did my life mean where am i going after i die and so for us to have the privilege of being there and helping them through that is 
very um, much of an honor to us and we don't want to get in the way of their beliefs and where they are but simply to be there to support them in that. Mm. Louise, you managed to, you said, raise three million dollars in three years for the yes. Gosnell House and I know you had a major donor that was very invested in bringing this thing to reality. Right. What do you think it is about hospice and the idea of a hospice house that causes people to um, want to give? Well, I think they see a need in the community, number one. And our, don our major donors in the beginning, um, I, I want to correct one thing, I didn't raise three million myself, we raised it all, a, a whole group of us. Um, I did do 1.5, but you know, it was because of our wonderful donor. Um, but I think, you know, they, they, the, it's a, a personal commitment too. It isn't just about the whole community. They they understand what hospice is all about. And the people that we went to, we didn't have to sell it. We said, you know, this is it. We don't have it in Maine. We need to build this. We need to have this for our community and for you and for everybody as a as a state. And that really that was the approach, you know. I had never raised money before, you know, and it was very hard for me to ask. But once I got going and you believe in it, and they take it from there. They understand it. And people were so generous. And I think what really now, it's just continues on. You know, you see it in the paper, in the obituaries, and people who probably would have given money to their alma mater or something, you say, donations to hospice, because they realize how important it is um, to, you know, send funds to it, and it just keeps perpetuating itself. Um, and, you know, we we want to do more in hospice care. We want to have more facilities and education facilities and a bereavement center. And so, you know, it's always ongoing for fundraising. Yeah, and I think that's an important point, because I don't want people who are listening to think, oh, we already have a house, yeah. lots of people are donating. I mean, we went from being almost last or last in the nation as far as hospice availability to somewhere in the middle, from what I understand. But that still leaves us only somewhere in the middle. There's plenty of room to move, and death is going to happen to each of us. Mm -hmm. So how can people learn more about donating to Hospice of Southern Maine? They can call us at 207-289-3640. Uh, they can also go on our website and um, there are many areas of informational um, or many informational sections on the website and there is a way to make a donation online there on the website as well. And the other piece that I wanted to make sure people understand is that there is a huge need for hospice volunteers and there's a very specific hospice, hospice training that people go through in order to become a volunteer. That's right. Um, we're always looking for people who are interested in volunteering with us. There are many different ways to volunteer. Some people choose to work with helping patients and families directly. Some like to volunteer with events and special services like our memorial services. Some like to do administrative um, roles like help with organizing things in the office, for example. 
and um, in order to volunteer uh, there is a 40-hour training that people would go through that helps to give them the tools and the skills and the understanding that they need to be effective in their role. So what you've described is this helping people to transition through the end of their lives. Are there certain lessons that people have learned or have you heard of specific stories that people have shared with you about the types of um, deeper meaning that they might have found through hospice? Mm. There are so many wonderful, transformative, life-changing stories that we hear and that's where the reward for doing the work of hospice comes in. Um, and I can think of um, one story that pops to my mind immediately, uh, a man that um, back when I was doing hospice home visiting as a nurse myself, um, and I was managing a program at that time, one of the nurses came in and was saying that this gentleman that she was visiting was in great distress and despair. Um, and this is a spiritual issue. He was saying that he felt like his life had had, had no meaning, that it had meant nothing. And um, she knew something about what his wife had told her about his life and what it had meant to her and her children. And she asked his permission to tell his wife how he was feeling, and he said, yes, you know, that was okay. She shared it, and then the next visit when she went back, he was really transformed. He had gone from seeming to be very anxious and depressed to peaceful and um, was able to have real healing and change there in his view of himself and his life and come to peace. Um, oftentimes the hospice team can help relationships also where there might be a need to forgive or be forgiven to help to process some difficulty in a relationship. Um, and I remember another story where oftentimes when people are dying, we have some rules of thumb that we use about how we know when people are getting close to death. And one of them is when a person is taking in no food and no fluid, it's usually around two days, around 48 hours, that they can last with, with no intake at all. And we had a patient, and she was not taking in anything, and it was getting to be a couple of weeks, and she was getting really agitated and uncomfortable. And the nurse asked the family um, if they could think of anything that might be unresolved for her that we could help her with, even though she was unresponsive and unable to talk at that time. And they said, well, there is this relationship with this family member, but they're way, way away. They wouldn't be able to get here. And so we said, well, would you be willing to just try if we got that person on the phone and put it up to her ear, even though she can't talk, and see if that might help? And they did that, got the person on the phone, that person was willing to talk, said what they had to say, the, the patient had the phone up to her ear, and, and then she quieted and died peacefully just a little while after that. So it was needed to bring resolution and peace. So there are so many stories like that. And, and as a hospice team, um, that's where we see healing happen. Yes, the physical body's dying, but there's still a lot that can happen in those other domains. And it's a privilege to be able to assist with that, help someone say goodbye, say I forgive you, whatever it might be. Louise, do you have any words of wisdom for people who might be going through this sort of transition during the holiday season? I 
think it's really important for families to communicate and talk about death. It's death is always hard at a crisp in the Christmas holidays, Thanksgiving holidays, but the more you talk it out as a family, the inevitable. And I think it's important to bring children into it. Often when my children were real young, we didn't sort of bring them into the dying bed. Oh, don't let the child see it. But now we do, and it's so important for children to understand death and to say goodbye and to understand that loss. Um, and I think spiritually it, it heals. It helps heal, and it bonds a family if it can be done. Well, I'm so happy that you've taken the time to come and talk with me today and spend time with me talking about hospice. We've been with Louise Hurlbut, an advocate, and we'll call you a fundraiser, but mostly <laughs> I think you're just an advocate for go. Hospice of Southern Maine, and also Arlene Wing, who is the Chief Executive Officer of Hospice of Southern Maine. I appreciate your time and your willingness to bring this important work to the world. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, show number 66, Comfort. Our guests have included Ann Lynch and Valerie Jones of the Center for Grieving Children and hospice advocate Louise Hurlbut and Arlene Wing, Chief Executive Officer of Hospice of Southern Maine. For more information on our guests, visit doctorlisa.org. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is downloadable for free on iTunes. For a preview of each week's show, sign up for our newsletter and like our Dr. Lisa Facebook page. You can also follow me on Twitter and Pinterest, D-O-C-T-O-R Lisa, and read my take on health and well-being on the Bountiful blog, bountiful-blog.org. We love to hear from you, so please let us know what you think of our show and if you have suggestions for future shows. Also, let our sponsors know that you have heard about them here. Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial, Beth Schisler of Seabags, Dr. John Herzog of Orthopedic Specialists, Marcy Booth of Booth Financial, and Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of Remax Heritage are not only sponsors, but personal friends of mine. I'm privileged that they enable me to bring the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour to you each week. This is Dr. Lisa Belial, hoping that our show will inspire a sense of comfort in your day. Thank you for making us a part of your world. May you have a bountiful life. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is made possible with the support of the following generous sponsors. Maine Magazine, Mike LePage and Beth Franklin at Remax Heritage, Seabags, Dr. John Herzog of Orthopedic Specialists, Marcy Booth of Booth Financial Services, Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial, Apothecary by Design, and The Body Architect. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is recorded in downtown Portland at the offices of Maine Magazine on 75 Market Street. It is produced by Kevin Thomas and Dr. Lisa Belial. Audio production and original music by John C. McCain. For more information on our hosts, production team, Maine Magazine, or any of the guests featured here today, visit us at doctorlisa.org. Download and become a podcast subscriber of Dr. Lisa Belisle through iTunes. See the Dr. Lisa website or Facebook page for details.